Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which passes all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this morning, let's make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to... Uh, get back in fellowship, confess any known sins to God, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this privilege and opportunity to gather together to fellowship around the teaching of your word, to focus on the truth that you have revealed to us that is the means by which we grow and advance, by the means by which we orient our thinking to reality, and the means by which we glorify you. Now, Father, we also pray for our nation, for our president, for those who are serving in the uh, various branches of the military that you would uh, give wisdom to our civilian leadership as well as our military leadership that you would watch over and protect us, that you would give them wisdom and skill, that the enemy would be foiled, that we would be able to, to uh, uncover their plots, and that you would continue to protect this nation. Now, Father, as we study your word today, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we study that we may continue to advance towards spiritual maturity. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I just thought I would begin today with a test. This is a short quiz. It's not much. It's four questions. Now, this is going designed to tell you whether or not you are a professional. Now, these questions aren't difficult. First question, how do you put a giraffe into a refrigerator? Think about it. How do you put a giraffe into a refrigerator? The correct answer is you open the refrigerator, put the giraffe in, and close the door. Now, this question simply tests whether you tend to do things in a simple way or if you try to overly complicate them. Second question, how do you put an elephant into a refrigerator? Now, think about it. If you say open the refrigerator, put in the elephant, and close the refrigerator, you're wrong. So you forgot you've already got a giraffe in there. You have to open the refrigerator, take the giraffe out, out and put the elephant in, and then close the door. This tests your ability to think through the repercussions of your previous actions. The third question, the king of the forest is hosting an animal conference. All the animals attend except one. Which animal does not attend? Very good. Somebody got it right. The elephant. The elephant's in the refrigerator. You just put him in there. This question tests your memory. Okay, if you didn't get any of the first three right, you have one more shot at it. Fourth, there's a river you must cross, but it is inhabited by crocodiles. 
How do you manage it? Hey, all the animals are at the animal conference. You just swim across the river. This question tests whether you learn quickly from your mistakes. Now, according to Anderson Consulting Worldwide, around 90% of the professionals they tested got all the questions wrong. But many preschoolers got several correct answers. This disproves the theory that most professionals have the brains of a four-year-old. But if they work hard, they may attain that level. All right. What is the gospel? 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What is the gospel? A question that doesn't appear to be as difficult of any, as any of those I just asked you, but I bet 90% of the folks get the answer wrong. It's amazing how few people understand this and how frequently you will find people go to this chapter to define the gospel in terms of verses 3 and 4. But verses 3 and 4, to give you a preview of coming attractions, do not define the content of the gospel. Rather, verses 3 and 4 provide the basis for the gospel. So we will get there eventually. Now, last time, at our introduction to this chapter, I looked at seven points on the doctrine of resurrection. I just want to review the last two points for you before we get going again. The sixth point was that at the rapture of the church, all church-age believers receive their resurrection bodies. The Bible teaches that there is a bodily resurrection and that the the first fruits of that resurrection was the Lord Jesus Christ. So his resurrection is the pattern for all other resurrections. It is a physical bodily resurrection, and as I pointed out last time, It is important because it demonstrates that there is a purpose to having a body. This is completely contrary to Greek thought, and we have elements of that ancient thinking still pervasive today where we want to emphasize the soul over the body as if the body is not quite as important. Of course, this had rather negative consequences in terms of Neoplatonic thought in the early part of the church because they... They, they didn't necessarily say that the, the body was evil like Gnosticism, some elements of Gnosticism did, that matter was evil, spirit is good, therefore the body is evil. But it limits the significance of the body. And yet it is the, the entire man that is in the image of God. Now the emphasis is on the soul there, but as we saw in our study of Genesis 1, 26 to 27, and Genesis 2, 7, that God formed our physical bodies to be the way they, they are for a purpose. It's not just some random design, but it is a design specifically related to the fact that it is in this kind of a body that God would incarnate himself and need a body that would be able to uh, accurately and fully express all that he is and all of his essence and all of his attributes. So we have to say there is a significance to the human body. Now, the rapture is when church-age believers get their resurrection body, but I also reminded you last time that, according to Luke 16, there are interim bodies. There's never a time when the soul is just sort of a disembodied, uh, amorphous 
entity floating around without any way to receive input. Just think about it. Your soul can't see without a, without physical eyes. Your, your soul can't uh, receive any sort of sense impression without any sort of, of a body. So there's always a body. Now, the seventh point from last time was that there are ranks uh, of resurrections of, of the body. There are different series of resurrections. Overall, there are two resurrections that the Bible speaks of, but the first resurrection is divided into uh, five segments. Five segments. So they are... First Corinthians, based on 1 Corinthians 15:23, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. So let's knock this out. The word is tagma, which is a Greek word that refers to a military uh, unit. It's a division and order. It is a military term for a division or a battalion or a brigade, some level of military division. So we will look at this in terms of a, of a battalion type structure. The first company is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who is the first fruits of resurrection. Romans 1-4, 1 Thessalonians 1-10, and 1 Corinthians 15-20. The second group, B Company, is the church. All church-age believers receive their resurrection body uh, at the time of the rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, and 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 57. If you die before the rapture, you're absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord with an interim body. You will not receive that resurrection body until the rapture occurs. The third group, C Company, takes place seven years after the rapture when Old Testament saints and tribulation martyrs are resurrected. Uh, this is based on Daniel 12, 13, Isaiah 26, 19 to 20, Revelation 24, or 20, verse 4, Matthew 24, 31. And then I may have the next one out. No, D Company, there are two... Uh, Actually, this is out of order. D Company. D Company is actually the two servants of the Lord who were killed halfway through the tribulation. These are the prophets that are just killed by the Antichrist, and their bodies are laid out for public view for three days, and then they are resurrected and ascend to heaven. E Company takes place of two segments. That's all the millennial saints and those who are alive after the tribulation receive their resurrection bodies at the end of the millennium. So those are five groups that are comprised the first resurrection. The second resurrection is all unbelievers since the beginning of time. All unbelievers, and that occurs at the end of the millennium for the great white throne judgment, John 5, 28 and 29. Revelation 20, 12 to 15, and Matthew 25, 41. Once again, John 5, 28 and 29, Revelation 20, 12 to 15, and Matthew 25, 41. Now, why do we say that Old Testament saints are not resurrected until the second coming? 
So there are seven reasons why Old Testament saints do not get resurrected until the second coming. The first is that the body of David is said to be still in his grave on the day of Pentecost. Therefore, David was not resurrected. Old Testament saints were not resurrected at the time of the crucifixion. Turn in your Bibles with me. Let's just look through this passage. Acts 2, 25 to 32. Acts 2, 25 to 32. The context is Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. Acts 2, 25 to 32. Now, at this point, Peter has just stated the fact of Christ's resurrection, verse 24, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. So he's going to illustrate the principle of Christ's resurrection, and he goes to the Old Testament. Verse 25 is a quote from Psalm 16:8. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope. For you, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Now, the point of this, quote, You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption or your Holy One to see decay. A quote from Psalm 16, a Messianic psalm. Just an interesting side note. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, they believe that that is a reference to those who are saints, human beings who live exceptional lives. And one of the more bizarre things that that, uh, I've done when I've gone over to Kiev is go down to the Lavra Monastery, which was established there in about the 10th century, and a couple of uh, monks from down in the area around Greece came up and dug out a cave in the side of the mountain, and they went in and they established this monastery. Within a few years, they had gathered a community of monks there and hermits, and they would live in the caves. And whenever one one of these guys died, they would did something to bury their bodies and a casket down in, inside the caves, and they claim that they haven't suffered corruption. And you can take your walk through the lava caves now, and you can see one little casket after another, and I, I guess it's a combination of the air and some other factors. They're virtually mummified. And people go down there, and they kiss the tops of these coffins. and they. And I mean, it's just one of the most bizarre examples of how corrupt religion is. But they claim... That see, you can look at these bodies, you can see their little withered hand and, and, uh, they, 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 they change the clothes. Of course, the clothes, uh, rot. So every year, somebody gets the body of going down and changing the clothes on all those cadavers. And they've got all the, these monks buried down there from the last thousand years. And they, they go to this verse and they say, see, they're holy because they haven't undergone corruption. But they have undergone corruption. They're just mummified. They're, they're, they're dead. 
and they don't recognize that Psalm 16 applies to the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't apply to to other believers. And the point there is that he was not allowed, to, his body was not allowed to stay in the grave, but there was a resurrection. Acts 2.28, you have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now, Paul, uh, Peter, excuse me, applies this in his message. He says, brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us today. In other words, he is still in the grave. And so he goes on to say, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, Christ there, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. Thus this Jesus God raised again, to which we are all witnesses. And the point I am making here is on the day of Pentecost, David is still in his grave. Old Testament saints have not resurrected yet. So they are still in their grave today. Second point, Daniel 12.13, in combination with Isaiah 26.19 and 20, demonstrates that it's impossible for Old Testament saints to be resurrected prior to the second coming. Daniel 12.13 and Isaiah 26.19 and 20 makes it impossible for Old Testament saints to be resurrected prior to the second advent. Now let's look at those passages. Daniel 12.13, But as for you, go your way to the end. Then you will enter into rest, that is a euphemism for physical death, and rise again for your allotted portion, that's Old Testament inheritance language, at the end of the age. The end of what age? The tribulation period. This is an Old Testament passage. Daniel knows that that the age of Israel, in fact, in Daniel 9, remember you have the prophecy of Daniel 70 weeks. So he will not rise again until the end of the tribulation period. Isaiah 26:19 Your dead will live their corpses will rise you who lie in the dust awake and shout for joy for your dew is as the dew of the dawn and the earth will give birth to the to the departed spirits so there is clearly an old testament doctrine of resurrection now remember when you get into the new testament there were two different groups actually there were three but in the bible there are only two groups of uh of religious sects in Judaism. There were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees believed in the supernatural. They believed in angels. They believed in resurrection from the dead. The Sadducees didn't believe in these things. They didn't believe in the angels, and they didn't believe that there was a resurrection from the dead. That's why they were sad, you see. But it's clear from the Old Testament that there were numerous passages indicating a physical bodily resurrection. The Sadducees were sort of the religious liberals of their day. Third point, the principle of the dispensation of Israel. This is inferred from numerous passages. There's no basis for their resurrection until the dispensation of Israel is concluded, which is at the second advent, which takes place at the second advent. So, once again, the resurrection of Old Testament saints doesn't occur until the end of the tribulation at the time of the second coming. Fourth, the witnesses of Moses and Elijah. 
if they are the two witnesses of Revelation, and I believe that's most the most likely interpretation, they couldn't come back in a resurrection body and die. The point I'm making is if they had a resurrection body now, they couldn't come back in the middle of the tribulation with a resurrection body that can't die and be killed by the Antichrist. So they ha- still have a body that is mortal. And so they will come back and be killed at that time. Point number five, the unconditional covenants, which are the covenants based on the Abrahamic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the land covenant, the new covenant, and the Davidic covenant, these unconditional covenants are not fulfilled until the second coming. So no resurrection of Old Testament saints occurs until the time of their fulfillment. It's when when the Lord is going to fulfill his covenants to Israel that they are resurrected. That is why Jesus, the Lord, pre-incarnate Christ, made a promise to Abraham that he would inherit the land, not his descendants, but that he would inherit the land and live in the land. But he never inherited or possessed the land during his lifetime. Therefore, that is a reference to his possession of the land and his resurrection body. Sixth point, in Matthew 27, 51, and 52, the emphasis, that, that is where you have the graves open up at the time of the crucifixion. And those came out of their graves, but that was a resuscitation, not a resurrection. They did not receive their resurrection bodies at that time. I don't know how much longer they lived. If they just came out for a short time or if they came out and lived to the end of their normal mortal life, the, the scriptures aren't clear. I tend to think that it was just momentary or just for that day, but there's no way to be to be sure. They came out of the graves at the crucifixion. And Ephesians 4, 8, where it talks about it, the ascension, Christ took captivity captive. I believe this is the transfer of Old Testament saints from paradise to the third heaven. Uh, but that does not give them their resurrection bodies. They are in, a, in, a, in an interim body just as we are until the rapture. That's the background. Now, when we come to 1 Corinthians 15, we have to remember a couple of basic points by way of background. Paul is talking to Greeks. He is talking to Greek believers, but remember, these, these are believers who are still having major problems with the uh, philosophical, cultural baggage that they brought with them when they got saved. They are... Christians, but they're thinking like pagans. They still have cosmic thinking in their soul. They're still thinking in terms of Greek philosophy, and they've been enamored with Greek philosophy. Back in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1 and chapter 2, we dealt with this extensively in terms of their emphasis on human wisdom versus divine wisdom, and their the fact that they were all caught up with uh, Greek thought that influenced so many of the problems that these carnal Corinthians faced with. We have to remember 1 Corinthians 3 that, that again and again Paul has accused them of all sorts of aberrations, immorality, uh, problems with uh, divisiveness, problems with dividing up into little personality groups. And there's nothing nothing worse than Christians who put the emphasis 
on somebody's personality or on one person or another. That is not the point in the body of Christ. And as soon as you start seeing some Christian uh, idolize some pastor or some teacher as some super gift to the local church, then you immediately recognize that they're, they're in carnality, they're out of fellowship, and they're acting like a cult member and not like a believer. And this was the exact problem the Corinthians faced. But when it comes to the issue in 1 Corinthians 15, the issue again is, is resurrection. Resurrection was a challenge to the thinking of the Greeks because they did not value the human body. This is the point I've alluded to already and made last week. In Greek thought, the material world was less significant than the ideal world. So that they emphasized this. Also, they had an emphasis in Platonism on the pre-existence of the soul. That somewhere back in time, all the souls were created. And whenever a baby is born then one of these already existing or pre-existing souls is then assigned to that body. So what's the body? The body is now a trap or a prison for the soul because this soul had real freedom in this ideal existence prior to uh, physical birth. So in Greek thought, being housed in a body was akin to being imprisoned or restricted and in Greek culture, they rejected the concept of the resurrection of the physical body. Now, let's take that to an, an, another example of paganism, because it's very similar, and that is in Hinduism. And in both uh, many different forms of Greek culture, they also believed in reincarnation. Reincarnation was a definite part of of Plato's thinking. And reincarnation is just the religious version of being recycled. So when you get to India in Hinduism, you have the same idea. The soul is is what's important, and eventually when you work your way up the chain of, of karma and the uh, chain of being, you lose your identity and you're absorbed into nirvana. But the body wasn't important. So what did they? What what do Hindus do with the body once you die? They burned it. That's the historical. Uh, origination of cremation. Now, I'm not telling you what to do or what not to do. What I'm basically doing is throwing out something for you to just chew on. So we tend to think the body's not important, but the idea of cremation came out of pagan thought that diminished the value of the body. The concept of a burial came out of Judeo-Christian heritage where there was an emphasis on the physical bodily on physical bodily resurrection. You know, these practices do not just appear in history for various reasons, and that is why when you get into areas that were influenced by Judeo-Christianity, there's this emphasis on the body. Now, there were pagan practices that emphasize the body just as much. For example, the Egyptians built their their pyramids and mummified the bodies for the afterlife and various other groups. And I'm not saying that there are uh, inherent or necessary connections. I'm just saying that is one of them. And for that reason, the early church emphasized uh, physical burial. And that is why that, how that came into 
uh, Western society and Western culture. In Greek culture, physical bodily resurrection was a strange idea and one that they rejected. So you see, when you come down to concepts of Western civilization, that what made Western civilization what it is, although there are a lot of elements of Greek and Roman thought, what made it different is Christianity. So when you get into your uh, modern classrooms of history in high school and college, and there is an assault on Western civilization and the Western canon, and you get the whole postmodern emphasis on Christianity, um, postmodern emphasis on history going, it becomes inherently anti-Christian. Because when they start dumping on the fact that all of our problems are due to white, male, Western Europeans, what made them what they are ideologically wasn't the Greek and Roman influence, it was the Christian influence. And so it is a subtle assault on Christianity. Well, because of the Greeks' view of the glorification of the soul and the irrelevance of the body, they actually rejoiced at death. They were glad when they died. For example, in um, for example, in Acts seventeen thirty-two through thirty-four, when Paul addressed them about the resurrection of the dead. The response of the Athenians was that they sneered at him, they rejected him, they ridiculed him because of his view on the resurrection of the dead. Biblically, resurrection goes back to the Old Testament, and we see the first indication of it is really in Genesis with Abraham, but we get the divine interpretation of that event in Hebrews 11:17 and following. Hebrews 11:17 we read by faith Abraham when he was tested offered up Isaac that's Genesis 22 when God told Abraham to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah did not mean that God was authorizing human sacrifice or that human sacrifice had ever been accepted it was a test of Abraham's doctrine of the doctrine in his soul and if he would rest in God we studied the by faith phrases in Hebrews 11, and we know that this is a pregnant phrase that implies not only by faith, that is the act of trusting, but also what is trusted in, that is the doctrine in Abraham's soul. So by means of the doc, relying on the doctrine in his soul, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. The phrase who had received the promises indicates that Abraham had received specific promises from God that he would have a son. And through that son, all the nations would be blessed. And through that son, his descendants would be numbered as the stars of the sky and the sands of the sea. Well, Abraham knew that that hadn't happened yet. So, verse 18, uh, it was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He knew God would not go back on his word. And so when Abraham is taking Isaac up, up on Mount Moriah to sacrifice him, Isaac knows that even if it goes all the way to the end and he kills Isaac, that there's going to be a resurrection. Otherwise, God would not be true to his promises. And in verse 19 we read, Hebrews 11:19 he considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead 
from which he also received him back as a type. In other words, he had such confidence in God that he knew that he could take uh, take his son up there and slit his throat, and God would bring him back to life. So Abraham was just completely relaxed in the whole situation. Now that tells us something about how the faith rest drill ought to operate in our own lives. Key verses on the resurrection. First of all, Mark 8:31, our Lord taught the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus clearly prophesied his physical bodily resurrection. In John 11:25, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And there he's talking about physical bodily resurrection and went on to prove it by resuscitating Lazarus, calling him out from the grave. Then again, the first two uh, messages or sermons preached after the day of Pentecost both focused on the resurrection of Christ in Acts 2, 14 to 36 and Acts 3, 12 to 26. So the resurrection is crucial. It is because of the resurrection that you had these 11 sniveling, cowardly disciples who had no backbone whatsoever, who scattered and hid from the Jewish and Roman authorities at the time of the crucifixion, turn around and were willing to give their lives for what they believed about Jesus Christ because of what they saw empirically in the resurrection. It changed them completely. The resurrection is a lynchment. It's not some sort of idealized thing that Jesus rose in the thoughts of his followers or that it's just there, something they came up with. You don't take men who are uh, hiding and who are cowards and see them transform in a matter of three or four days into strong advocates of a of a position and give their lives for it. And the majority of the disciples gave their lives for the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Even someone who was not one of Christianity's greatest friends, John Locke, the 18th century British philosopher said, Our Savior's resurrection is truly of great importance in Christianity, so great that his being or not being the Messiah stands or falls with it. So let's take a look at 1 Corinthians 15 and what we will learn about the doctrine of resurrection. This is the chapter in the New Testament on the doctrine of resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15.1, now Paul says, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you were saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, don't worry about the last part of verse 2. That sounds like it's lordship, but it's not. It's just a bad translation from the Greek. Let's get a little organization here in this chapter, a little outline. The emphasis in this chapter is on the centrality of resurrection to Christianity. The first two verses are an introduction that resurrection is an empirical reason 
for Christianity, otherwise your faith would have no real purpose. It would have no real uh, uh, cause. We'll see the details when we get to the end of verse 2. Verses 3 through 19 deal with the historical reality of the resurrection. The historical reality of the resurrection, verses 3 to 19. Verses 20 to 28 talk about the impact of the resurrection on the angelic conflict and human history. The impact of the resurrection on the angelic conflict in human history. Verses 29 to 34 talk about the implications of Christ's resurrection. The implications of Christ's resurrection. And verses 35 to 58 answer questions regarding the resurrection. So that's the basic structure of the chapter. So let's begin by looking at these first two verses. Verse 1, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which you also received and which you also stand. Let's just look at the first part of it and break it down for in terms of the exegesis. The verse actually begins with the Greek conjunction de, which contrasts two clauses or sections. And we see that this introduces a whole new section that is completely different in its theme from the previous section of verses 12 through 14, which dealt with spiritual gifts. We have a whole new subject, and he introduces this in these first two verses. The first verb is norizo, G-N-O-R-I-Z-O, the present active indicative. Now, the present tense here is a historic present. It's not a continuous action present because Paul is not saying, now I am now making this known to you. That would be a, a present tense or continuous action present. This is a, what's called a historic present where the present tense is used to describe an event which occurred previously as though it were taking place in the present to dramatize the event or to dramatize the reality. So Paul uses a present tense, but he is talking about what has gone on already, what he gave to them when he was first with them. This is reinforced by the fact that the subsequent verbs in this passage, for example, that which I proclaim to you is an aorist middle indicative of euangelizo, what you received is an aorist active indicative of paralambano, and in which you stand is a perfect active indicative of histemi. So those are all past tense verbs. That means that the present tense of made known should be understood as a historic present. It is, uh, it's a past tense, past time action emphasized or dramatized by the use of a present tense verb. Now the question is for us, how do we make known the gospel? How is it that we make the gospel known? We make it known in personal conversation by talking to people. Uh, the scripture says, how shall they hear unless someone tells them? And how, how shall 
uh, someone tell them if, if there's not a preacher. The point in the scripture is that you have to be willing to communicate that to people. That's part of our responsibility as members of the royal family. We are royal ambassadors for Christ, and you don't have to have the gift of evangelism in order to witness. That is your responsibility, and none of us start off learning doing it very well. And so what happens is most Christians end up flubbing it a few times and wanting to cut their tongue out because they just didn't do it very well, and then they quit. And you'll never learn how to uh, witness. And remember, the power in witnessing is in the gospel itself and the Holy Spirit, not in your articulateness, not in your intelligence, not in your ability to debate. The power of the gospel is in the gospel itself, and it's God the Holy Spirit who makes it clear. It's simply our responsibility to tell people, to make it clear, to give the, get the words out there so that the Holy Spirit can use it. So the first way in which we make the gospel known is through personal conversation. A second way is through teaching. This takes place usually in a local church setting in Sunday school. And this is something that if you teach in the prep school, you need to make sure you are making the gospel clear to your kids down there on a continuous basis. Don't take it for granted that because they've grown up in this church and you know their parents and you know their brothers and sisters that they are saved. I can tell you all kinds of stories about friends of mine who grew up in church, good churches, Bible churches, went to Christian camp, heard the gospel, could repeat the gospel back to you, and then one day they wake up and say, you know, I don't think I ever did this myself. Now, I don't know if that's actually true or not, but one day it just hit them. I don't think I ever trusted Christ as my Savior. And see, we're going to see that in the gospel today. The gospel isn't about believing that the Bible says Jesus died on the cross for your sins. It's believing that Christ died on the cross for your sins. I can uh, I can look at any book and say, well, according to the uh, philosophy of Heidegger, I am just a product of you know material causes. It doesn't mean I believe that I'm the product of material clauses. I can I can look at Darwin's Origin of the Species and say I believe that according to uh, Darwin's Origin of the Species, I'm evolved from from uh, apes. But that doesn't mean I believe that I evolved from apes. So, see, we have to make sure as teachers that we're constantly making the gospel issue clear, especially in prep school. We make the gospel known through our lifestyle witness. This is a nonverbal witness. But you know what? People aren't saved through a nonverbal witness. Another nonverbal witness is general revelation. General revelation is the evidence of, of a intelligent designer of the universe, a nonverbal witness that the heavens declare the glory of God, but it's nonverbal. You can look at the stars in the sky all day long, uh, Bullinger's The Gospel in the Heavens Notwithstanding, or The Gospel in the Stars, uh, you don't learn anything, any content or propositional truth from nonverbal revelation. But it is confirmatory. It creates perhaps an interest uh, among some, some people, and it, it clearly substantiates what they know that you believe. There's the lifestyle witness. You can pass out tracts. We try to have little tracts out in the foyer for you to pick up and to take with you. You can leave them at all kinds of places. You can leave them in a hotel room. You can leave them at a 
at, with with a tip. Make sure you tip well when you do that. At a restaurant, uh, you can you can just hand them out to people. There are all kinds of ways in which you can use a tract, and then you can uh, uh, come up with your own ways in which you you witness to those around you. So Paul says, now I make known to you, or I made known to you, brethren. He did it when he came, and he, he taught in Corinth. He made known the gospel. I made known to you, brethren. He addresses this to them as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's important, because you see, when we get down to verses 3 and 4, and I remember memorizing this years ago, and I even remember a seminary professor saying the verse many seminary professors actually saying the verses three and four the essence of the gospel. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, and that he was buried and that he rose from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. But if that's the gospel, do you have to believe in the resurrection to be saved? No. You don't. We'll get into that. Verses 3 and 4 don't give you the gospel per se. It gives you the foundation for the gospel. The foundation for the gospel that Jesus was who he claimed to be, and that's validated through the physical, his physical bodily resurrection. So verses 3 and 4 are not a definition of the gospel. They are the foundation of the gospel. So Paul says, I... Moreover, brethren, and he addresses them as believers, and uh, the point that I was making is that that he, he includes as part of the foundation of the gospel, the resurrection, the reason you know you don't have to believe it to be saved is the Corinthians are called brethren, and they're saved, and they don't believe in the resurrection. That's the problem of 1 Corinthians 15. They don't believe in the resurrection, but they're saved. So... This, this chapter is designed to correct their understanding, their false understanding of the doctrine of resurrection. So Paul says, moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel. And the word there to make known to you the gospel or, uh, I mean, which I preach to you, the word there translated preaching or what I, in the New King James Version says, I declare to you uh, the gospel which I preach to you, there's the word, which I preach to you, is the Greek verb euangelizo, that's E-U-A-N-G-E-L-I-Z-O. Obviously, it's the verb from which we get our English word evangelize. And it's an aorist middle indicative indicating with the aorist that it is a a constitutive aorist, meaning that it simply summarizes the past action up into a simple statement of something in the past. And it means, the meaning of uangelizo is to bring good news, to announce good news, that's or to proclaim the divine message of salvation, proclaiming the gospel. It means to, and that proclamation can come in all kinds of different ways and different manners, as I've just just suggested. So now we read that he made known the gospel, and that's the noun form, euangelion, which I preached, euangelizo, to you. So the question we have here is, what is 
the gospel. What is the gospel? And it means a, the good news. So what exactly is the content of the gospel? What is the bare minimum that somebody needs to believe in order to be saved? Well, first of all, we have to understand that the Greek word gospel, or the Greek word euangelion is the word from which we get our English gospel, which means good news. It means basically good news, good tidings, uh, a good message. It is the indication that something good is happening. Now, this automatically excludes a work salvation because it's not good news that you have to change your life on your own in order to get saved. It's not good news that you have to work hard in church and be committed and reform your life in order to be saved. That is not good news. That's bad news. The good news is that it's grace. You don't do anything to earn it or deserve it. Well, in order to understand what it means to proclaim the gospel, the verb euangelizo, or the noun euangelion, let's look at some gospel presentations in the New Testament. Let's look at some examples. See, this is biblical methodology. How do you know what's, what, what it is? You go to the Bible and let the Bible define itself. This is called, we usually refer to it as comparing Scripture with Scripture. The technical term in hermeneutics, it's called the analogy of faith. So let's look at some passages in Acts. Turn to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8 is when Philip gives the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch. Or it's, actually, it's prior to that when Philip goes to Samaria. Verse 4, Therefore those who were scattered, this is after a persecution developed in Jerusalem, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. And that is the verb galizo. They went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And this is a synonym. It's not euangelizo, which emphasizes the gospel, but this is a word that emphasizes the method. It is this word, keruso. Probably it's one R, two S's. K-E-R-U-S-S-O. And this is the noun, the verb what was kerux. I mean, excuse me, the noun was kerux. And the kerux was the town crier. He was the one who simply made a proclamation. The king gave him a message. And he was the herald who went, walked through the streets of the town making an announcement. He simply cried out the announcement. He didn't stop to discuss it. He didn't stop to debate it. He didn't uh, uh, change the message. He just went through town and proclaimed it. So the verb has to do with proclaiming something. And in Scripture, the verb keruso is most frequently associated with the content of the gospel. Keruso is the word that we would translate preaching. You see, the Bible makes a distinction between preaching and teaching that has been lost on American Christians. See, American Christians think of preaching as a form of oral communication. It is a style of rhetoric. And so you go to some churches, and what they do on Sunday morning is they preach. 
and it fits a certain oral style of communication, three points in a poem or a certain kind of expository outline, but it is designed primarily to exhort or encourage people in the pew. Well, if you do that on a consistent basis, when 90% of your people are in church, you'll never produce any mature Christians because it's designed, I mean, the cultural preaching, the cultural understanding of preaching is designed to encourage believers. But encouraging believers doesn't give them the content to exchange divine viewpoint for human viewpoint. And if your goal is to teach, you'll always hear one complaint. Well, that's too academic. That's the cry of a mediocre failure in the Christian life. You may not always understand it, and there are many things I get into that you may not have the background for, but if you hang around long enough, you're going to get it. And it's going to make sense. But if you just want some place to go where you're going to get a little encouragement and walk away feeling good, number one, you'll never grow anywhere in the Christian life. And number two, you've set your sights awfully low. You don't want to excel in the Christian life. You just want to get by and hopefully make your life a little, little easier than other people. And I've often reminded of the fact that some people listen to me and they say, you really ought to teach in seminary. And I always bite my tongue and say, you're really stupid. And you're ignorant. And you don't have a clue what goes on in a seminary classroom. A seminary classroom, typically you'll go in and you'll take, if, if you take an elective, you'll have the Gospel of John in one semester. And you'll go through it in about, in maybe 28 hours of lectures. Well, there's 31 chapters. You don't even spend a whole hour per chapter. Or you go into another class and it's the, the epistles of Paul. You go through all the epistles of Paul in one semester. And in roughly 36 hours, you cover all the That's not very much depth. What happens in a seminary, the key word is seminal. The seed. You are given the seeds for a ministry. A man who goes to seminary learns Greek and Hebrew and he learns theology and he get and he deals with the basic issues in the books of the Bible, problem passages, things like that, but he doesn't ever have the opportunity to ever get into any real depth in any book. You don't get the opportunity to really get into the meat of the word. And I remember uh one there was one course in seminary that was uh, quite helpful. I never had a chance to take it, and it was preaching through Genesis, and you covered it. I think it was a two-hour course, and you went through that course, and it was about, you know, typical semesters, about how long, 18 weeks, 20 weeks, so you got maybe 40 hours of lectures on, on Genesis. Well, we're in chapter 6, and we've gone through 45 hours in Genesis, and we're really dealing with what the book says. We're not just kind of skipping along the high points. And so people come along and they say, oh, you teach in such depth, you ought to be in seminary. See, what we've done is we said the church is for shallow, superficial, emotional exhortation that doesn't challenge me intellectually or spiritually. In other words, we want mediocrity. We want some guys who's going to preach and not teach. But the Bible says preaching, if we're going to use that word, let's use it with the right right object we preach the gospel we teach the word although there's a famous passage in 
Timothy where Paul tells Timothy to preach the word. But most of the time, preaching means just simply that proclamation. And it is most often related to the object of the gospel. And it is not a form. It is not a certain rhetorical style. Teaching has to do with line upon line, verse upon verse, precept upon precept. And it is teaching that inculcates the word of God into the hearer so that they can think biblically about life and they can have discernment and they can learn how to stand on their own two feet spiritually and evaluate the situations in their life from the perspective of the word of God, make decisions from a framework of divine viewpoint and not human viewpoint, not based on sentiment, not based on emotion, not based on tradition, but based on what the Word of God says. And it is said that most people would rather sit and just be entertained or be stimulated emotionally than to study the Word. So in our first example in Acts 8, those who are scattered went everywhere preaching the word, and there it's uangelizo, and so the word that they are preaching there because of the na- because of the verb is the gospel, and we see this in the expos- in the development of the next few verses. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and preached Christ to them, announced Christ the Messiah to them, and we read the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. And then it describes some of the miracles that accompanied him in the next couple of verses. And there was, and then we're told that there was great joy in that city. Now, what, what did they do in terms of a response? Look at verse 12. See, if you don't go to verse 12, you don't understand what they did in response to the message. Verse 12, but when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concurrent, and that's Uangalizo again, preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Christ Jesus, both men and women were baptized. What was the response that, that went with the proclamation of the gospel? Believing, not changing their life, not repenting, not doing anything else. The key here is belief. And we're going to come back and continue our progress through Acts next time, looking at numerous examples of how the gospel is proclaimed, uangelizo, and what the characteristics were in each of those situations or circumstances, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for the clarity of your word and for the clarity of the gospel, that the gospel means to trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior, to have faith alone in Christ alone, to believe that he died on the cross for our sins, to believe that he paid the penalty. He's our Savior, and deliverance is only and exclusively through him. Right now, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, is the opportunity for anyone here who's not sure of their salvation or certain of their eternal destiny to make it sure. You don't have to pray a prayer, walk an aisle, raise your hand, or do anything else. You simply trust in Christ. It's a mental attitude. As a result of volition, you believe Jesus died for you. God is omniscient. He knows what you're trusting in. You don't have to tell him. The instant you believe, you are saved, regenerate. God the Father imputes to you his perfect righteousness, and on that basis you are declared to be just, justified by faith alone in Christ alone. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we study today and challenge us with them that we might press on to spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.